Please join with me in prayer. Gracious Father, we are so grateful for this time of year where we are reminded that we are not alone and that you've given us the helper to live the lives you've called us to live in a culture that appears to have gone off the rails. But you've given us all the resources we need. And we thank you for that. And we just ask, Lord, as we look at this word in Proverbs today that we would navigate this world we live in with great wisdom all unto you, Lord Jesus, and that this word, which is familiar to many, would have new meaning as we walk from here on this Lord's day of all days. Take our minds now. Think through them. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before I begin, I just want to thank you all for praying for me, for Kim, and my mom. It's a 14-hour trip, but on Memorial Day weekend, it's a 16-hour trip. Straight. Got to stop at Chick-fil-A. Mom is no longer able to care for herself. And the whole goal of going there was to get her to understand that reality. And she needs more than we're able to give her. And she accepted it. She may not remember what we told her yesterday, but she accepted it. And she knows there are options. So she's going to a, a assisted living facility with memory care, and she'll be well cared for. And I just thank you guys for praying for me and Kim. It was a hard trip. We're all a little depressed. Because if you know my mom at all, strong, spunky, quick-witted, she's no longer. And it's hard for us all to, to, for her to be so fragile. You know, it's hard for her. But that's where we are. And many of you have been through it. So I thank you for your understanding and your prayers. And so we arrive today at Pentecost Sunday where you've heard us these great Acts 2 readings and the church got empowered, spoke different languages, and the gospel went forth powerfully through Peter's mouth. And we heard Jesus promise us the gift of the Holy Spirit. But it's also our graduate Sunday. And today we honor especially our Beatrice who will be going to Dort University in the fall. And so I was thinking, what would be a word for our graduates? But not just for our graduates, but for all of us. Because I don't know about you, over the past few weeks, the world is going crazy. Our country is going crazy. I mean, for two weeks, we have had two 18-year-olds kill people openly in Buffalo, in Uvalde. They were 18-year-olds. Some crazy Chinese guy, because he hated the Taiwanese, walked into a Presbyterian church in Laguna, California. And this past week, a guy just couldn't have his pain alleviated, so he decided to kill his doctor and other people on that floor of the hospital. How can we, how can we deal with this? The good news, brothers and sisters, that in Christ, we do have all the resources we need to live in these days, for perhaps you were born for such a time as this. 
There's no accidents here. And only relationship with Jesus Christ can give you those resources that we have for the days ahead, no matter what. And so we're going to need to have great wisdom. So I've chosen Proverbs 3, 1 through 8, and I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs 3. Because the book of Proverbs is about gaining godly wisdom. Tim Keller defines wisdom as competence with regard to the complex realities of life. Wisdom is not identical to morality. You can, for example, help a family in deep poverty to get out of poverty, and that's a good and noble idea. And you might do it completely ethically and entirely ruin their lives because you're not conversant with the complexity of the realities of how things work in the world. It's not good enough to be a person of vision, high principle, high morality, if you're not a purpose, if you're not a person of wisdom, and here's why. Wisdom is the ability to know the right thing to do in the 80% of life situations to which moral rules don't apply. For most of the decisions you have to make, the moral values, whatever you think they are, don't apply because there's three, four, or five, or six different options, and they're all allowable, they're all moral. Which one do you do? You see, we need more than ethical principles. We need new hearts. We need wisdom deep within at the intuitive level. As we hurry from one complex decision to the other, moment by moment, in the concrete realities of our lives. Without God's wisdom, many difficulties in life will remain greatly confusing. With God's wisdom in our hearts, we get how life really works. We come alive more and more. It was the great Bishop Irenaeus in the first century who said, The glory of God is man fully alive. That is where Proverbs 3 wants to take us this morning. It's an education in life at its best. How to live well in every area at home and at work and where we live, work, and play. So Proverbs 3, 1 through 8, God is showing us the way to shalom, verse 2. Good success, verse 4. Refreshment, verse 8. This is not a matter of earning God's love. Look at verse 1. My son, the father says. God is speaking to us as his beloved adopted children. He's not stuck with us. <laughs> he chose us before the foundation of the world simply because he loves us. And now he's coaching us in how we can be fully alive for his glory. But when you read this passage, there can be a problem, and I want to address it. The wise father figure offers us in verse 2, length of days and years of life. Verse 4, favor and good success. Verse 10, barns filled with plenty and vats bursting with wine. Verse 16, riches and honor. Kind of sounds like the prosperity gospel, doesn't it? You know, the idea that God is out to make you healthy and rich and comfortable at the top of the mountain because you're his child. Is that what this passage is saying? Well, first, the prosperity gospel is found nowhere in the Bible. The prosperity gospel is cold-hearted materialism investments. 
It chooses Bible verses selectively to fit a name it and claim it theology, and it does not love God. It uses God for its own selfish and childish purposes. What does the prosperity have to say to Paul? When he's talking to the Philippian church in chapter 3, verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I count as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because it's the passing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may share in his suffering and becoming like him in his death so that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. That's good news. (laughs) Prosperity gospel can't say a thing to that. Secondly, the reward God offers us in Proverbs 3 are good. He will give them out to his wise children as he sees fit. But, you know, life is complicated. And every single one of our lives is complicated. God sends pain, too. If you go down to verses 11 and 12, it's clear that God disciplines us. God sends both earthly blessings and earthly sorrows. I learned that this week. My 95-year-old mom still kept her humor. She has to be showered. And as the young, good-looking male nurse was showering her at the nursing home last week before we got there, she's leaning up against the shower while he's scrubbing her down, and she says, you know, young man, if you get your jollies over a 95-year-old frail woman, you got a lot of problems. (laughs) Way to go, Annie. God sends us pain, too. It'll come to us. But when you think of Jesus, he both suffered at the cross and prospered in the resurrection. The resurrection is his prosperity. You will want when your health fails, and it will soon. If your story is limited to the blessings of the here and now only, you're in trouble because your vats bursting with wine are going to also run dry. But if your life in this world is only the title page of the internal story that God is writing, and God also gives you some barns and vats for the present, praise God. Just be sure you set your heart not on the gifts, but on the giver of the gifts, who will never fail you. C.S. Lewis tells us wisely in Mere Christianity, he says, quote, The settled happiness and security which we all desire... God withholds from us by the very nature of the world. But joy, pleasure, and merriment he has scattered broadcast. We're never safe, but we have plenty of fun and some ecstasy. It is not hard to see why. The security we all crave would teach us to rest our hearts in this world and oppose an obstacle to our return to God. Few moments of happy love, a landscape, a symphony, a merry meeting with our friends, a bath, or a football match, have no such tendency. Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for our home. So, we come to this passage, which is organized around two themes. The shalom God gives, verse 1 through 4, 
and the trust that God demands. But if you look closely, you'll see that the wise father links his counsel with incentives all along the way. For example, verse 1, the counsel, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. The incentive for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Step by step, our loving Heavenly Father gives his counsel and then adds an incentive. And he never gives counsel to say, do this because I told you. He says, do this because I love you. It'll help you. It's good for you. This is good news for natural rebels whom God treats as his own dear children, guiding us, counseling us, calling us, urging us, and blessing us. So how does he want to do so? First, with the shalom that he gives, verses 1 through 4. Starting with verse 1 and 2. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your hearts keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. So what's the father saying? Pay attention. Pay attention to me. See, you're going to pay attention to something. But only... God's teaching will lead you into shalom, which in Hebrew means wholeness and peace. It's more than the English peace, cessation from warfare. No, it's, it's that plus wholeness. God is not saying we have to be smart. As a matter of fact, you might get that math problem every now and then. That You not get it. That's okay. It's okay, but we have to pay attention to his gospel and its implications, and his teaching, and his commandments. In all the noise of our culture, what are you listening to? How is it working for you? Is it a mirage leading you with the false promises that are always just out of reach? What are you paying attention to? Is it leading you into peace? Be honest about that. If you don't have peace, the Holy Spirit's speaking to you right now. If it's not helping you there, there's a reason. Drill down with me in this this morning. Is it the Father's teaching you paying attention to you, or are you paying more attention to our cultural mores, some defunct cultural theory that will never, ever satisfy? The second line of verse 1, that word, Keep means more than obey. It means guard, maintain vigilance. It means let your heart guard my commandments. Your heart is your security system. And every day, thieves are trying to rob you of your length of days and years of life and peace. Elsewhere in the Bible, these ideas are just called idols, obsolete ideas that cannot help because we make them up naturally. Our own hearts produce them. So for example, what life scenario will make you say, I've finally arrived? What does arrival look like to me? Whatever that scenario is, if Christ is not the life-giving center of it, your heart has already been penetrated by life-robbing idols. 
There's a reason why the Father is telling us to pay attention, stay alert. When we forget Christ, we're not released into freedom. We submit to false teaching that it fill our lives with absolute regret. For example, if you feel that you will finally arrive through your career, then you can never relax because you are literally working for your salvation. If you believe your family will make your existence, your arrival is insecure because parents, I'll tell you, your kids at times will break your heart. However you define shalom, if it is not in Christ, then it's an idol demanding your all but giving nothing. If you obey it, it will break its promises. If you fail to obey it, it will punish you. So here's my point. Our problem is not just our wandering wills. Our problem is our false beliefs. Our minds give credit to the lies of the world. That is why our Father is saying, stay alert to what you're believing moment by moment. My teaching alone can make you lie down in green pastures and still waters. Pay attention to the gospel of the finished work of Jesus Christ for sinners. If you will guard my teaching with your heart, you'll experience it as true shalom. So he continues. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you, verse 3. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. The key here is steadfast love and faithfulness. These are words that God used to describe himself in Exodus 34. What are we counting on about God? We're staking everything on God's being steadfastly loving faithful to us forever through Jesus Christ. Because he's promised to be. And the Father is saying to us in this proverb... You know that's who God is. He told you so in the Bible. Okay, so let God change you. So much of American religion is not about who God is. So much of American religion makes us the immovable ones, the center around which God orbits. American religion is not about us changing and repenting and adjusting to who God is. It's about God making us feel better about ourselves without our ourselves ever having to change. But the truth is, God is who he is so that we can become more like him. And after all, isn't that what we really want? A person of steadfast love and faithfulness can be trusted. You have nothing to fear from such a person. You have everything to admire in a person of steadfast love. God is that person. And he wants to make you more like himself. So many people have walked away from Christianity over the past few years because they've been let down by Christians. They don't believe anymore because they did not see the reality of God and God's people. Oh, they wear a cross around their neck. But without binding steadfast love and faithfulness around their necks. The fraudulence of that makes people angry and they have a right to be angry. So the father is saying here to his children, my steadfast love and faithfulness to sinners, let that be your persona. Wear that reality in public because it's who Jesus is. 
I want you to be like him right out in the open for all the sinners to see and have new hope. When people see Jesus in us, we find favor and good success. There's no other way. We wouldn't want it another way. That, then, is the shalom God gives, and it's both personal, verse 1 and 2, and it's social, verse 3 and 4. So how do we get there? Well, we get there by giving the trust that God demands. Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. It's the most famous two verses in all of Proverbs. They're saying that our confidence is not some impersonal ethic but in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the kind of trust he deserves and demands is a wholehearted trust in the Lord with all your heart. Ray Ortland shared the story of one of his seminary professors who grew up in eastern PA. Uh, his, his, the, his dad, the seminary professor's dad, when he was a young man, was trying to walk across the frozen Susquehanna. Susquehanna is a big river, you know? And so he's walking across the Susquehanna to get to the other side, and he's not sure that the ice is completely frozen, so he lays down on his belly and starts going across like this. All of a sudden, he hears some horses and the whip of a whip, and he looks back behind him, and here's a guy with a sleigh of logs whipping these horses across the Susquehanna River, and they pass him as he's crawling. The guy was a local. He knew how thick the ice was. Too many Christians are like that man on all fours creeping along way too cautious. Their trust in the Lord is half-hearted. Then along comes a wholehearted Christian. I can stand up and walk across the ice. It changes the tone for everyone around. The Hebrew verb translated trust means to throw oneself down on their face. The best illustration I can give you is just do a belly flop in the Lord. All of it. All out. With all our sin and all our fear and failures. We stake everything on the promises of the gospel. If God fails us, we're doomed. If God comes through, we're saved forever. Real trust is that blunt and that daring, but it's not blind, but it is simple. Rock star pastor in Chicago, A.W. Tozer, says it this way. Pseudo-faith always arranges a way out to serve in case God fails it. Real faith knows only one way and gladly allows itself to be stripped of any second way and makeshift substitutes. For true faith, it is either God or total collapse. And not since Adam stood up on the earth has God failed a single man or woman who trusted him. I'm calling each and every one of us today. I'm calling you to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ with everything that shames you, everything that terrifies you, and holds you back in a full walk with Jesus Christ. Trust him. Let your full weight down on him. He will never fail anyone 
who trusts him radically. Belly flop faith. No pseudo faith. Because he's no pseudo savior. He's real. He's all he claims to be. And he's right now all he has ever been to anyone, anywhere. And he offers us his total self to you today on terms of his sheer grace. What he deserves and demands is your total trust and love and mercy and wisdom in Jesus and Jesus alone. So how can you tell if your trust is wholehearted? When I was a kid, this time of year, Memorial Day, our neighborhood would all gather, and it happened every year. Cash Carter, that's a great name, Cash Carter, owned the local beer distributorship. Good man to know, all right? Mr. Carter would always ask me, Gene, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he told me when I graduated from high school all the various things I told him throughout the years, you know? I'm a little guy. I'm going to be the third baseman for the Baltimore Orioles. When Brooks Robinson retires, I'm going to replace his shoes. I'm going to be a Green Beret. I'm going to be a fighter pilot. Nobody says, I want to be half-hearted, wishy-washy, whatever. Nobody wants to be half-hearted, right? You don't want to be half-hearted. And so... That's what you said. So let's examine ourselves. Is our trust wholehearted? First question for you. Do you let the Bible overrule your own thinking? Verse 5. Do not lean on your own understanding. Do you merely agree with the Bible? Or do you obey the Bible? You know, we took Sherlock with us, my, my basset hound, to Moultrie. He's nine years old. And, you know, I've come to realize sometimes Sherlock agrees with me. But he obeys me often on his own terms. Come on, Sherlock, it's time to get up and go for a walk. Uh, <laughs> come on, boy. Uh, that's his sound. See, if you merely agree with the Bible, then your response is not obedience, it's coincidence. It's just that the prejudices you have soaked up from your culture happen to line up with the Bible at that point. But what do you do when the Bible contradicts what you want to be true? If you are looking in the Bible for excuses to do what you want anyway, you have, in fact, rejected God. But if you trust in the Lord, you will let the Bible challenge your most cherished thoughts and feelings. And the wonderful thing is that the Lord cares about your questions. He cares about your problems. He wants to speak into your life in ways that are going to help you, not hurt you. If you will trust him wholeheartedly, you will let him teach you. Second question for you. Do you believe someone somewhere without Jesus will still go to heaven? Do people really need Jesus to have peace with God? Or is it okay with God if they're just sincere, well-meaning people? If you think so, you're probably putting yourself in that scenario because you're not sure about Jesus. You're not trusting Jesus to save you. You're hoping he will save you. You're hoping Jesus will flatter you. But if you trust the Lord entirely, you will also trust him exclusively as your only Savior, as anyone's only Savior. Third question. 
When was the last time you took a risk to obey Jesus Christ? When was the last time you diminished your future socially, financially, professionally, for his sake? When was the last time your life looked obviously different from the life of someone who did not trust Jesus at all? If you never surprise an unbelieving friend by your sacrifices for Christ, it is probably because what you're living for is the same earthly payoff that he is living for. But if you trust the Lord entirely, you also trust him exhaustively across your whole life. You will not be a fragmented person. You will not think piecemeal. You will, as verse 6 literally translates, know him in all your ways. Then he promises to direct the course of your life straight on to where you want to go. He will make straight your paths. It's a wonderful insurance. You will let Jesus rule as Lord over your entire life. And he will so enter your, your story and so make straight your path that all things will work together for your good. Will you trust him with all your heart? I see this in all my high school friends. I graduated in 1980, didn't get to go in 2020 to my high school reunion. I was so bummed. Kim was thrilled. I loved high school. It was a great experience for me. It wasn't for her. She doesn't want to go to class of 82. Could care less. I go, come on, let's go. No, she didn't go in. But I see it on Facebook among my friends that I'm still in touch with. And I see the difference among those who know Christ and those who don't. Many of my friends have thrown themselves into the materialism of the 80s. Work hard, drink hard, play hard. And they've aged hard. Many of them prematurely. And they seem to look happy, but it seems forced. I see my other friends who are walking with Christ. I re, I, I'm thinking of one girl in particular. You know, it was a large Virginia high school, about 3,000 kids. And she was quiet, shy. But now she's an outgoing, radiant, lovely woman, great husband, sparkle and charm. She's trusted the Lord with all her heart mind, strength, and she's living proof of his wisdom. Here's the price, if we want to call it that. Here's the price we pay to walk with God in a way that really helps us. Verse 7 and 8. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. The Father is warning us against the spirit of self-assurance. It's the opposite of trust in the Lord, and it brings no healing and no refreshment. You remember Frank Sinatra's 1969 hit, My Way? That was his number one song. Did you realize that? He sold more copies of that stupid song than any of his others. I mean, what's the matter with just the way you look tonight? People didn't buy it as much as they bought my way. 
What's the matter with New York, New York? Great song. What's the matter with you make me feel so young? No, my way. Listen to these words. Stupid. And now Paul Anker wrote it. But Frank sang it and made a ton of money from it. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case, which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's a full. I've traveled each and every highway. And more, much more than this, I did it my way. Yet there were times, I'm sure you knew, when I bit off more than I could chew. But through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and spit it out. You know, I faced it all, and I stood tall, and I did it my way. For what is a man, what has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and I did it my way. Stupid. (laughs) So stupid. I can't believe it. We glorify the know-it-all who does it his own way. But you know, later on in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 12, the Bible says, Do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. A spirit of self-assurance will destroy you and everyone you love. It will not work. The universe will not cooperate with our arrogant self-centeredness. But fearing the Lord and turning away from evil, which means calling sin for what it is and turning from it, is healing and refreshment. Notice that. It's not just that it will help you avoid pain. You will enjoy the positive energy of healing and refreshment in the midst of pain. Here's the irony. The more you fear the Lord, the less you will fear man. The more you depend on the Lord, the more independent you will be. The more you resemble Christ, the more of an individual you will be. The more you obey Jesus, the freer you will be. Life will work for you with healing and refreshment. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Yeah, it's a simple thing to say, but we need to hear it. Because it is radical. It's interesting that the first of Martin Luther's 95 theses of the Castle Church of Wittenberg, Germany, was this. Theses number one. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ is saying, repent, intended that the whole life of believers should be of repentance. You know, you probably have a to-do list for this upcoming week. Here are the priorities God wants at the top of your list. And so write it down at the top of your list. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. Number three, breathe. As time permits, breathe. That's the urgency of our lives this week. It will add greatness to our lives. It will add life to our life. It will save you from a wasted life. 
John Wesley said, give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of God upon earth. So Beatrice, we're proud of you. We encourage you, dear sister. And with you and everyone here, if we want our lives to count now and forever with Jesus, here's what we need to do. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. Breathe. God's got it. He's got America. He's got us. I don't know what he wants to do with America, but I know what he wants to do with us. Right? Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. And it'll be a beautiful life together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this word, and we're grateful that we have this day to recognize that we can't do it in our own strength. We ask you to fill us, Holy Spirit, to trust in you with our whole being, all our hearts, and lean not on human understanding. And Lord, that we would fear you and turn from evil. And no matter what we're going through, you would bring healing to our lives and refreshment to our bones so that we would be your people. Following that new commandment you give us in loving one another and love our neighbors as ourselves. And Lord, we just pray that you would do that great work in us. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.